All right, let's go Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah 29. It's in the Old Testament if you're not familiar with the Bible. Uh, if you don't have a Bible of your own, I think it'll be up on the screens behind me. That's not the series we're doing. I'm preaching Jeremiah today. All right. um, but <laughs> uh, it, it'll be up on the, uh, the screens behind me in just a little bit. If you're watching us online right now, it'll be up on your screen when we get to that part of our time together. Uh, if you don't own a Bible of your very own, uh, we would love to give one to you. We can uh, do something about that pretty quickly. Um, so Vacation Bible School, uh, as I mean... It's here, right? Like, decorations are up. I'm wearing the VBS t-shirt. We're teaching songs in here. Uh, we got some people who are about to go out of their minds trying to keep it all together. All right? And so VBS is here. And if, if you happen to be on the fringe looking into something like Vacation Bible School, you might be seriously wondering by now if we've lost the plot. Right? Like, like, like Sherry is like, on the verge of going into the deep end, all right? All right, like some of you could probably help her this week. Some of you need to stay out of her way, whatever it is. Like this is this weird, complicated week. And if you're on the outside looking in, like VBS is this kind of thing that you're like, why do we go to this kind of effort? Why do we spend this kind of energy and attention and dollar bills putting something like this together? Why do we do this? And even further, like, like, why ramp it up the Sunday before? We're already giving it five whole days. Why give it the Sunday too? Right? And the answer is alarmingly simple. In fact, it couldn't be more simple. Like, it's because VBS is one of the most effective evangelism and discipleship tools that we've got at our disposal. It's a life changer, actually. See, the reality is that when you start... Uh, you know, adding things up. There's, there's no other program ministry in the life of our church or any other church I know of that comes close to bearing as much fruit as Vacation Bible School does. God just uses it in a, in a wholly distinct way from everything else that we're, we're doing. And so, and, and so many of you likely have VBS as a part of your story somewhere, right? whether it was growing up in this church or growing up in a church far away from here, uh, if you've got a church background, likely VBS is in there somewhere, and you can probably point to a few things that God did with it. See, the reality for a lot of people is that, is that God used Vacation Bible School to show you himself and completely direct your path forever. So yeah, it's worth it. It's completely worth it. It's worth what we're putting on to, to make it happen. We're, we're going to cut up and be silly this week. We're going to feign exhaustion from kids who've never dug a hole in their life. It's going to be great. And it's all going to be to the glory of God. It's all going to be worth it. We're going we're gonna to trust that God is going to use this coming week to capture little hearts and minds for his kingdom. And when we frame it that way, like, what could ever possibly not be worth that, right? We're going to open up the Bible every day this week and show a bunch of kids that God's Word is good 
and that it's trustworthy, that he is both made and is fulfilling gigantic promises. Uh, as you can see, we've got this kind of archaeology theme going on. We're going to lean into these ideas of, of apologetics and, and historicity and, and, and the veracity and trustworthiness of the scriptures and, and all these kinds of things that, that God has both made and is fulfilling gigantic promises. And because he is a promise-keeping God, we can trust all of the other things that he's promised to fulfill in the future. Because he's shown himself to be true, because he's shown himself to be good, because he's shown himself to be capable time and time and time and time again, we get to point at all the things that are coming down the pipe and say, why wouldn't we trust him for that too? Right? But here's the deal. Here's the deal. While some of you are going to be heavily invested in all the things that are going on this week, many of you won't. In fact, several of you won't because, you know, you got like real jobs and stuff. First of all, I'm sorry, your life is so boring. <laughs> Secondly, we, won't, we don't want you to stay on the fringe. You may not be able to be here, but maybe we can fill you in this morning about what's going on this week, kind of a top-level view of what we're aiming at so that maybe you can better pray for what is going on in this room and around this campus this week. And so... Um, I think the best way to do that is to walk you through our theme verse for the week. Anybody know what it is yet? Jeremiah 29:13. Jeremiah 29:13. Uh, and so if you if you have your Bible, Jeremiah 29, uh, we're going to look at our theme verse first, and then we'll back up and give it the context. So we're going to look at verse 13 before we look at anything else. And so uh, find that with me. Jeremiah 29:13. It says this. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your what? With your heart. Sounds pretty warm and fuzzy, right? Like, like that's a coffee cup verse if I've ever heard one. You just slap that sucker on a pretty background, throw it up on the Instagrams, and just watch the likes come pouring in. That's a good verse, man. Completely void of context. That is an absolutely massive promise, right? Like, who doesn't love that verse? Like, like, those who diligently seek after knowing God will ultimately find him. That's huge. What a promise, man. Is there anybody in here who thinks that, like, that, that sounds like bad news? Is anybody going, no, I don't want any of that. I'd love to find me some more God. I'd love for the effort that I put into chasing after him to always pay up those results, right? That's a good verse. When you couple that with our archaeology theme for the week, when you couple that with this emphasis on apologetics and historicity, I mean, it doesn't just sound like an incredibly wonderful appeal for people to go chasing after God and then find Him. It's a good verse. Context-free, man, this is an amazing evangelism verse. If it weren't for that pesky content, right? So I think we need to back up, and I think we need to take a closer look at what's actually going on by the time we get to verse 13. 
Um, so if you're new to the Bible, Jeremiah is an interesting book. It's written by the prophet Jeremiah. That's how it gets its name. We're brilliant at naming things around here. Um, but, but it's written to God's people, specifically the nation of Judah. You had the United Kingdom, they broke into two. The northern kingdom called Israel, the southern kingdom called Judah. Judah lasts a little bit longer than Israel. And so this is after the northern kingdom has gone away. They've already been overthrown by the Assyrians. Uh, and so they've lasted a couple hundred years longer. Uh, and so, uh, but... It's written in a period uh, at the very end of the Judean Empire, very in, end of the Judean kingdom. Uh, so it's leading up to and then at the very beginning of what we often call the Babylonian captivity or the Babylonian exile. All right? Judah is unrepentant of their sin. There's idolatry everywhere. All right? uh, they are far from God. And so God raises up a prophet named Jeremiah. Uh, uh, and, and he also raises up this empire of Babylon to come in and deal with their unrepentant sin. To come in and do something about the fact that they are, in fact, far from him. And so Babylon sweeps in. They spend several years sieging the city of Jerusalem. Eventually, they level the place to the ground. They tear down the walls. They burn down the temple. It's an absolute mess. They leave it in absolute ruins. And for the purposes of our story this morning, they also carry off multiple waves of people into slavery. They cart them off back to Babylon starting with some of the best and brightest, like 900-ish miles away from Jerusalem to Babylon. God's people become slaves again in a distant, faraway, foreign land. And this time it's for about 70 years, right? Even if you're not familiar with the Bible, you, you may know the story of Daniel, right? We think that Daniel was likely in the very first wave of people that were carted off. He was a very young man when it happened, maybe even a, just a, a young teenager. And he ended, up, he ended up spending his entire adult life in that faraway land of Babylon. But leading up to, and then at the very beginning of this time period, Jeremiah was raised up as a prophet, uh, <laughs> a, a mighty prophet of God. And I, I think in our head, we often go, oh yeah, glitz and glamour, right? But that wasn't the ball game that the prophets got to play. Jeremiah was rejected, and the message that God gave him to give to the people was rejected. And so by the time you, you get to chapter 29 here, Jeremiah is writing a letter addressing what is probably the first wave of people that had been carted off to Babylon. He's still in Jerusalem. Some people have already been carried away, and, and we think probably a second wave is getting ready to head that way. And so, uh, well, he, he writes a letter to them to send with that second group to the people who are already there. All right. I think Jeremiah's got something to say in that letter. Like he's been trying to call God's people to repentance. They've rejected him. Uh, and there are t times in this letter before we get to chapter 29 where we see that he's beaten and he's mocked, that he's ridiculed, he's stripped of his clothes, he's kicked out of the kingdom. Right? Like Jeremiah was abused and misused and all the things that you can think of. Right? And so you think Jeremiah's got something to say in this little letter to the people who've already been carted off into slavery? He's got an I told you so in his back pocket? Let's look at it. Verse 1 it says, These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs and the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. 
The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Okay, so I know that that's a whole bunch to try to keep track of and keep straight, all right, but uh, as we're trying to read it, uh, but it's really just zeroing in on who the letter is, was written to and who, was, who the major players in, in the storyline are. And so we're told that Jeremiah writes this letter, that he's still in Jerusalem, but others have have already been carried away. So that kind of zeroes in our, our timeline a little bit. And so you've got King Jeconiah, you've got his mom, the queen mother, you've got a bunch of court officials, and then we also see a bunch of skilled laborers, skilled craftsmen that have been taken, carpenters and metal workers. I wonder what old Nebuchadnezzar could want them for, right? Like probably building a giant statue or something. I don't know. All right. And so we're, we're told that Jeremiah sends this letter with a guy named Elasa, and we've got some of his family tree in there. So what does the letter actually say? Well, verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. All right, so call time out there again. Okay, so one of the things going on behind the scenes here that'll help us kind of understand the, the tone of this letter and the purpose of this letter uh, is that one of the things that, that's going behind the scenes here is that Jeremiah has got some competition. All right? He's got some other guys claiming to be prophets. Some false prophets have emerged. The king of Judah, I don't know if you know this, he didn't like what God had to say through Jeremiah's prophecy, and so he went looking for someone else who will tell him what he wanted to hear. You can go ahead and be mad at him for that if you want to, but right, like the reality is, is that we're, you and I are often guilty of the exact same thing, right? I've never done something like that. Please. We all pretend this morning like that's not true for us. We know what God's word says and we don't like it. And so we go looking for anything and everything we can find that'll give us that second opinion, second opinion that we're itching for, right? Yeah, I'm definitely guilty of that. Doesn't matter what that other thing is. I just need a convenient something and that'll do. Go ahead and call it an expert. So King Jeconiah, before he was carted off, had surrounded himself with these false prophets and, and, and they're telling him that, oh, no, 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 this, this is just a giant misunderstanding. There's nothing to worry about here. Like, God's got this. There's no possible way that God would ever allow his covenant people, his beloved people, to ever be treated like this. Don't you worry. We'll be coming home soon. Right? We'll be getting out of Babylon any day now. Just you wait, Jeconiah. There's no, there's no way that God would ever be that displeased with us. Sure, he's, sure he's angry about some things, but we haven't crossed that line yet ridiculous idea that his covenant people would ever be submitted to exile in a foreign land. I thought God was better than that. So, so Jeremiah writes this letter and he sends it with Elasa and he lays it down thick, right? Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile. Speaking with God's own voice here, Jeremiah makes it crystal clear this is no accident. It's no accident at all. There's, there's no misunderstanding. There's no simple oversight on behalf of God. No, no, God was the one who placed them there. 
His patience toward them and their failure to repent had, had finally met its end. But, but here's what's incredibly wonderful about this story. Instead of simply just wiping them off the map and starting over, he instead gives them a multi-generation wake-up call. Why do I say multi-generation? We'll look at verse 5. Jeremiah continues writing here. He says, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. And so, so God tells them, hey, 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 go ahead and settle in because you're going to be there for a while. That's what he says. Go ahead and decorate the house. Hang up those pretty drapes you got. Make it feel like home because, well, it, it's home. At least for now. It's home. Raise that family up. Listen, not only will you be there long enough to have kids, but you're going to watch your grandkids grow up there. Seek the welfare of where I have placed you because its welfare is directly tied to your, your own. You, you, you want the good life? Make the good life happen. Over there. Get to work. you got a lot of work to do. See, not only is there no misunderstanding here, but God seems to make it pretty clear that neither is there time off for good behavior either. There's no, show me you can do what you're supposed to do and we'll have this conversation again in six months. Through Jeremiah, God, God tells the exiles to park themselves and get comfortable. They're going to be there a while. This wake-up call is... It's multi-generational and it's specifically designed to make the point stick. If you're Judah right now, I mean, don't you desperately want somebody, anybody at all, to give you a counter opinion? Don't you go chasing after it in that moment? I think. I think I would find it quite easy in that moment to go looking for someone, anybody, to tell me what I wanted to hear. Which is why in verse 8, God says this. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. Um, this, this isn't the first time in the book of Jeremiah that, that Jeremiah pins these words. We see the exact same language in both chapter 14 and chapter 27. This is a repeating phrase in the book of Jeremiah. In other words, before, during, and after the Babylonian conquest, God is consistently calling them to repentance, and they are consistently running in the other direction, chasing after spiritual voices that sound more pleasing to them. This is a recurring theme in Jeremiah's day. God says, they, hey, listen, these, these prophets and diviners, they may present themselves as if they are from me, but I didn't send them. Those aren't my guys. 
Their prophecies and their dreams, they, more, they may sound more palatable to you, but it's a lie. That's not, that's not from me. It's not from me. And again, we can, we can get all judgy about that, but we've got our own modern day equivalents in the marketplace that is the broader Christian subculture, there's, there's really no end to the options available to us, right? I mean, it's actually kind of easy to go chasing after other opinions. It's not hard at all to go looking for somebody to tell us what we were already wanting to hear. It's out there. And the, sin, the sinful leanings in all of our hearts, or at least mine, is to, is to usually want to point to things like style and the, I mean, it's really easy to be critical of those whose platforms look different than the one you would build for yourself if you had the opportunity to build a platform. Something pastors are guilty of often. But I don't, I don't think style has anything to do with it here. What the false prophets lack, whether we're talking about our day or in Jeremiah's day, what the false prophets lack is substance. What they lack is a desire to please God rather than pleasing men. And so, and so maybe in our day, if you want some practical advice, I think as you look at the marketplace and try to make sense of it all, try to, to, to figure out how God would have you press in here or maybe not press in there, like, like maybe the most valuable question, valuable thing you can do is, is ignore style for a moment and instead simply ask the question, does what they're proclaiming tell me what my sin-bent heart was already hoping to hear? Or, or does it call me to, to lean in to a greater trust of the one who is smarter and more lovely than me? Is what they're proclaiming cause me to delight in myself or to look away from myself? Does it call me to repent of my selfishness and my sin and instead delight in he who is infinitely holy and good? See, just like in our own day, the false prophets in Jeremiah's time, they had no trouble at all finding an audience that would, that would buy into their self-exalting message. People flocked right to them. It was easy to make money that way. The gigantic problem with that reality, though, no matter how successful in earthly terms they might be. The gigantic problem with that reality is that regardless of how much better the false prophets might have sounded to the kings and rulers of Judah, their message could never actually fix Judah's problem. More palatable messages are completely worthless if you're still far from God. In fact, they're, they're actually dangerous because they cause you to end up running headlong after the very thing that's harming you. It does more damage. But if you're paying attention, and I hope you are, I mean, that, that raises a pretty obvious question, right? Like, 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 how in the world could what God is promising here actually be better for his people? Like, like how is that good? Isn't, isn't God supposed to be good? Isn't he supposed to take care of his covenant people? Isn't he supposed to be kind and tender and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love? Isn't God supposed to be doing those things? Like how in the world could what God is promising here in the first part of this little letter actually be good news? Like how do we get to there? What reason? What reason at all could you possibly have 
that, to trust that God's plan is good in this moment, staring down the barrel of exile. Well, verse 10 tells us, is this. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. There's our theme verse for the week. And I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. All right, follow me, church. The reason... The reason why it is good news that God would send them away into exile is because it is precisely in that season of exile that they will finally loosen their grip on all the bankrupt idols that they're chasing after, including the idol of their very own hearts and lives, and they will instead cling desperately to the real thing. They will seek God with all of their heart, once the other things have been ripped away from them, they will instead seek God with all of their heart. And in that heart-filled seeking, they will find Him. Him. Hey, you know what's infinitely better than any sweet-sounding lie a false prophet can cook up? You know what's way, way better than, than anything that the, the, the most creative and most charming false prophet could ever dish out? Actually knowing the Lord. Right? Like, like, like are we all on the same page about that? Can we all trust this mor- moment and this, mor- this morning? Can we all trust that, that, that it's... That it's a better option than, than clenching our eyes shut and plugging our ears and hoping for something better? Because that's all they're doing. God tells them. God tells them in this season of exile that they will finally find themselves in the place where they desperately seek after him. And by seeking him with all of their heart, they will know him and be known by him. As crazy as that idea sounds to some people, I'm fully aware of it. Those of you who know him deeply might be beginning, might be beginning to think that, you know what, 70 years of exile sounds like a small price to pay. If that's what I get on the back end of it, maybe it's worth it. Maybe it's totally worth it. God tells them that they're going to have a multi-generational timeout, and that timeout is specifically designed to draw them to himself and to give them a hope and a future. To give them what the ESV renders here is welfare. The Hebrew word it's translating, shalom. I'm just going to guess you've heard that word before. We normally translate that word as peace, right? 
problem with that translation is that, well, when we think of the word peace, we think of a very specific context. We think of the absence of conflict. That is not at all what's going on in the Hebrew word shalom. In the Old Testament, uh, shalom, it carries the idea of completeness, of, of soundness. It's a peace-filled rest with having, that comes with having everything in its proper place and working correctly. That's what's going on in, in the context of shalom. And so it, it's something that's healthy and, and growing like it ought to be, like it's created to be. And so that's why the ESV translates that here as welfare. It's a God-given peace through prosperity. Things are good. It's not just the absence of conflict. No, no, everything's good. I couldn't want anything else. See, despite the dark days ahead, despite the pain and the heartache needed to finally open their eyes to their sin, finally call them to repentance. God says, God says hey, 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 my long-term plan for you is not to leave you there. Now, I'm going to get you to where I want you to be. I'm going to give you something more than this. this. This dark season is not the end of the story. It is a tool in my good hands to give you my infinitely better self. This exile is by my hand, and oh, by the way, your redemption will also be by my hand. It's coming. I'm good. You can trust me. Seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. That's the context of our theme verse this week. So now that we know the context... How in the world does that help us approach vacation Bible school? Right? Seems a little heavy for kids, right? Like how, how does this massive promise in Jeremiah 29, 13 inform the way we approach vacation Bible school? Like, like we're not Old Testament Judah. We, we don't have, we're not his covenant people under the threat of exile for failing to repent of sin on a national level. We're not them. I mean, we got national level sin, but we don't have the same deal. How, how does a promise for redemption on the front end of 70 years worth of exile help kids in Nashua, New Hampshire this week at Vacation Bible School? Or for us, for that matter, like, like what do we do with this text? And, and, and even on top of that, how do we ever begin to apply modern efforts of apologetics and historicity to this stuff? Like, what do we do with this? Well, we may not be covenant Judah, and we may not be facing down 70 years worth of exile. But the last time I checked, the God who tells Judah all those years ago that he desires to be found is the exact same God we love and chase after today. He hasn't stopped desiring to be found. He hasn't pulled back and said, no, 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 no. I'm going to do me, you do you. We'll just, we'll just do our own things. He still wants to be found by you. Listen, maybe you're in a dark season right now. Maybe, maybe that's the walk you're on at the moment. God feels far away. He might even feel like he's abandoning you altogether. Maybe that's your story right now. And, and maybe for some, it's a, it's a season filled with doubts and questions and, and, and concerns about where, what am I actually chasing after here? And for, and for others, it might very well be that God is calling you to finally repent of some uh, unrepentant sin. I, I don't know. I don't know. 
But whatever it is, we can all agree. It ain't fun right now. It's not, a, it's not a pleasant place to be in this season. Yet, I mean, you may even be tempted to, to go chasing after someone who will finally tell you what you want to hear. Right? But then God's tender voice keeps whispering in the background, seek me. Seek me. Chase after me. Seek me with all of your heart and you will eventually find me. Listen, I know the days are dark. I know it's painful right now. I know it feels like these days have no purpose at all, but they are a tool in my good hands. I'm using them. Trust me and seek me and I will be found by you. Chase I may feel unreachable, but I'm there. See, the question, the question of how in the world historical uh, arguments and apologetics and the, the veracity of the scriptures, how does any of that have anything at all to do with Jeremiah 13? Really kind of depends on what you think that those things are actually for, right? Um, if... If you see uh, apologetics and historical arguments and all those kinds of things as, as a, like a higher evangelism tool, a higher level evangelism tool, there's something to, to you know, finally nail down the, the intellectual doubter so you can get them onto team Jesus. If that's the way you see those, then using this verse, Jeremiah 29, 13, as our theme verse for the week uh, in connection with this kind of theme, uh, like it's that, that's just a giant proof text and shame on us for using it. When, do great danger and damage to our cause. We hurt people's view of the Bible that way. If, however, if, however, we see apologetics and the veracity of Scripture, the historical argument as tools that we get to use to press into him deeply, especially when we're faced with, the, with our own dark seasons full of doubts and questions, then those who seek me will find me is one of the most amazing promises in the world. It's the kind of promise that breathes life into a weary soul. It's the kind of promise that makes lengthy exiles seem like nothing. Apologetics and the historical argument are not clubs for evangelizing doubters. They are warm blankets for God's people for all of the seasons of our own doubts when they creep back in. They're for us. They're simple tools for our good to go chasing deeply after the Lord. See, our hope this week, our hope this week is not to teach kids how to hold their own in a debate over the historicity of the Bible. I don't, I don't think they need that. It's to show them that our promise-keeping God desires to be found by them. And he's given them countless tools for the chase. That even when he feels distant, that even when he feels far away, he has designed both his world and his word to show off his goodness. 
and to show off his presence and to show off his great love for them. On Monday, our kids are going to learn that Jesus came just as God promised he would. We can point to it and say he promised this and he promised this and he promised this. Hey, look what Jesus came and did. On Tuesday, they're going to learn that Jesus walked in a power that affected everything and everyone around them. Jesus was different than the normal dude. On Wednesday, we're going to look at how Jesus lived and then ultimately went to the cross already knowing how the deal was going to go down. His uh, arrest and betrayal, they weren't a surprise and they were no accident. They were on purpose. On Thursday, our kids are going to learn about the eternal promises of Jesus' death and resurrection. That's something that was promised back in the garden. That's not just a new reality that he's making up as he goes. No, 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 this has been God's plan all along. And then on Friday, we're going to spend our time learning about why we can always trust what the Bible says. Because, you know, it's like actually right. It's going to be a great week, man. I'm starting to get a little excited about it. Why? It's not because we got decorations and silly motions to songs. Those, those are periphery. Those are tools that can help our actual cause. No, I'm convinced that God will use this week in a massive way to forever change little hearts and minds. I trust that he's going to do that with this stuff. But that's what we're aiming at starting tomorrow. How can we respond to God's word today? Like, What do we do with it now? Well, if you're here and you're already a follower of Jesus, I think, I think our response is to go seeking him, right? Listen, maybe there's these these second-level tools that you've always just kind of thought weren't for you, maybe God gave them to you for good things. Press into them. I I think you're going to find him there. I think you're going to find him there. Whether you're in a dark season right now or you're not, like, why wait until that moment? Press in now. Go ahead and front-load all of those good things before you get to that dark season. Seems like a smart way to do things. But listen, you can also pray for those that will be involved in VBS this week. I I think that's a necessary response. Um, Pray that God would use all of these different things going on for his his glory and our good. Serious Bible studies, silly songs, and even lots of decorations that are somehow intended to make his name more famous. Pray for our kids this week. Definitely pray for our workers this week. I don't know if you know this, VBS is exhausting. Like, there's going to be some folks come next Sunday who are going to be swearing that they'll never do VBS again. We get about a month out of that, and then we're all like, when's VBS again? But, like, the back end of it, we're just all dead. It's going to be exhausting, right? It's totally worth it, though. It's totally worth it. Let's pray for, this, pray for us this week. <laughs> pray that we would not get exhausted so quickly. But what if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet? I'm glad you're hanging out with us today. Um, listen, you, you can respond to God's word too, and you do that by meeting Jesus. The Bible teaches that, our, that because of our sin, all people are separated relationally from God. and We have fallen short of his glory and that we are owed the just punishment for our sin. God, uh, but God sent his son, Jesus. He put on flesh and he dwelt among us. He lived a sinless life that neither you nor I am capable of living. He died on the cross to make full and final payment for your sin, and he was raised again from the dead as a vindication of his perfect and sufficient righteousness. Why did he do that? Because he's rich in mercy. 
because he loves you with a great, great love. So the Bible also teaches that those who will respond to Jesus in repentance and in faith will be saved. Those, those are two words that we use in church in a lot, repentance and faith. Maybe we don't use them in our broader culture as much, or they get distorted when it goes out into the broader culture. Uh, what we mean by them is that, it, that, that the repentance is to turn away from your sin and to turn to Jesus. Faith is to place your hope and your trust in his finished work on your behalf as Savior and Lord. And listen, you can do that this morning. You can do that right now. You can respond to Jesus. You don't need any help, but man, I'd love to be helpful to you. I'll be down front here if you want to talk about it. But whoever you are, however God is calling you to respond this morning, let's respond together right now as a church family. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for a letter to some exiles. We may not have the same national level covenant promises as Judah, but we definitely live in a world where it feels like we're in exile sometimes. There are seasons in our life, days, weeks, maybe months, where you feel far away. And sometimes it's little things, and sometimes it's major sin things, but for however we got to the dark season, you are not the God who leaves us there. You're the God who calls us to yourself through the dark season, with purpose in the dark season. So God, for those of us who might be in that season right now, would you give us some footholds? Show us how to chase well. If there's things that are standing in the way, call us to repentance. Father, for those who aren't in that season yet, would you give us some good stories to remember when that season inevitably comes? Father, for those in here who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known in this moment? Would you open eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to know you? Draw men and women into your kingdom this morning. As we get ready for vacation Bible school, would you do a mighty work here? Rather than kids being impressed with the songs or the snacks or the games or the decorations, would you show yourself off this week? And, you know, we get to celebrate on the back end next Sunday how many kids you saved. What a story that will be. Father, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray.